Do you have solo economic dependency? That is, if you aren't working, you aren't making money. The Art of Passive Income Podcast is the solution. Discover passive income models so you can enjoy life on your own terms. Let freedom ring. Hey, it's Mark Podolsky, your favorite niche real estate website, www.thelandgeek.com. And I'm super excited for today's guest. She's a little different, but before we talk to our guests, I'd be remiss if I didn't properly introduce my co-host, the brain, the professor, Scott Todd, scotttodd.net, landmodo.com. You got automating your Craigslist and your Facebook postings, hostingdomination.com forward slash the land geek, learn anything about anything, investorninjas.com. Scott Todd, how are you? Mark, I'm great, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm uh, I'm feeling um, a little inferior right now with our guest. So I mean, you know, like why wouldn't you be? Well, I'll, I'll explain <laughs> it when we read her bio. Anna Kelly is the founding partner of Zenith Capital Group, Apex Multifamily, and REIMom.com. She is a former top-ranked financial relationship manager for a private bank and began investing in real estate 20 years ago and has purchased, renovated, and rented millions of dollars in real estate across numerous asset classes while working full-time and raising four active children. Holy cow. She recently <laughs> retired from her corporate career after creating financial freedom through rental property investing. She currently has ownership and manages a rental portfolio valued over $60 million dollars and in, is invested in over 1,000 doors as a limited partner. She is an Amazon number one best-selling author and runs a meeting group for women in real estate. Anna Kelly, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. It's my honor to be y'all's guest today. I'm exhausted just thinking <laughs> about having a full-time job, investing in real estate, and raising four kids. Anna Kelly, walk us through this journey. Oh my goodness. It seems like it's been a very, very long journey. So for those that think, you know, real estate is a get rich quick scheme, it's definitely not. <laughs> I have definitely played the long game and it's just finally, you know, paid off. But I started investing in real estate a long time ago. You know, first I bought some speculative investments. Um, like buying a condo instead of an apartment and buying a, a house in a regentrifying area, thinking it was going to go up in value really fast, and it didn't. Um, then I played my hand at flipping property. So I did a property flip when I had a four-month-old baby in hopes that flipping was my ticket to being home with my kiddo. And then I moved to Pennsylvania about 13 years ago from Houston, Texas, and I started buying rental property really marked by necessity. So I was starting over with my husband. We relocated here to Hershey, Pennsylvania area to start a chiropractic business. And we started that between the building and the pra practice, you know, startup with almost three quarters of a million dollars in debt to start a business. In 07, high to the economy. And I knew it probably wasn't wise how unwise it was. I didn't really know until a couple of years later after the crash. But the one thing that I thought I would do was to be able to buy a commercial building that had tenants in it 
to help pay for the mortgage on that building. And we knew we couldn't really afford a new house because I thought I was going to lose my job at AIG on a trial three-month work-from-home basis. And so we bought a four-unit apartment building to house hack and live in just to be safe so that if I lost my job after the three-month trial, I would have tenants at least paying the costs of our living expenses, you know, our mortgage, our taxes, and insurance. And so we started out as landlords by necessity. And I just kept trying to grow my portfolio from there through the ups and the downs of the, the last recession. Um, you know, struggled to get financing like many other people, especially working for AIG, which was, um, you know, bailed out by the federal government and made me a very high risk to lenders. And so it took me a very long time to slowly build up that portfolio that ultimately would replace my six figure income and allow me to retire last year. Wow, Scott Todd, what are your thoughts? Okay, so yeah, you know, I, the the challenge that a lot of people face, especially when they want to do something with like multifamily or whatever, is okay. They got some money they can go invest in that, uh, in maybe that initial one. Okay, like initial units. Maybe it's four. Maybe it's six. I don't know, something like that. But then, where does the rest of the money come from to keep scaling and growing? Like that's a challenge that people can't seem to kind of grasp. Where does it come from? How do I get it? Absolutely. And, you know, Scott, I think that there, it's really important to point out that, that as you guys know, there's really no one right way to make money in real estate. There's a lot of variables that depend on you personally, your skills, how much time you have available, how much money you have available to invest. For my husband and I, we started off not only with nothing, but a negative net worth because of all the debt we went into. So I didn't have money to even you know, buy anything. Really, the only reason I got the first two was because it was in 07 when money was flowing freely, kind of like it is today. And so you know, I was able to house hack with 3% down and um, you know, get the commercial building with 90% with LTV financing and 10% on a credit card, literally. That's how I started. So you know, after that, we had no more money. So we had a place to live and we had some units and a little cash flow coming in. But when I wanted to buy more, we didn't have the skills. We didn't know how to really rehab properties. Uh, we didn't have money to buy more. And so we had, we knew we had to invest in education and put in the time. And so we kind of, you know, basically used what little we had and, um, Rob Peter to pay Paul to update units slowly in the very beginning. And once we realized that if we raise the value of properties and we could get higher rents, that would also raise the value of that property and we could have equity in them, which we could use to put down as a down payment on the next one. So we started reading things like on bigger pockets and, you know, just the, the little education that was out there back in 08, 09 on basically the Burr method. And so we bought really ugly properties that no one else wanted to buy. And we learned how to put in the sweat equity to renovate them, raise the values, cash out the, the equity. We knew we wanted to keep them as rentals so that we had that cash flow coming in. And we figured that if we could borrow the equity at a low enough interest rate that we could put it down on another four unit building, um, our return would be much higher and we'd be able to scale much more quickly than trying to do it with single family rentals. So the Burr method is what allowed us to do it. And by buying four unit buildings instead of singles, we were able to scale much more quickly than the traditional single family Burrs. So Burr stands for what? Buy, rehab or renovate, um, rent, refinance and repeat. 
Got it. Got it. And so, and, so were you, were you focusing only on like four unit properties or um, in the beginning, is that what your focus was? For us, it, it really was. And, and two reasons for that, Scott. One is that in my area, there were not a lot of large apartment buildings and I couldn't afford the apartment buildings, but these four unit buildings tended to sit on the market longer. Like the singles were flying off the shelf. People were, you know, highly competitive for them for flips. And so I couldn't ever get, you know, the highest bid to, to be able to win that and be able to do singles, but these four units set a while. So I thought there's kind of the sweet spot where the investors aren't really chasing them, but I knew that there was, you know, some potential in there to raise the values pretty quickly and to have higher cash flow than buying, let's say, four single, you know, single family houses for rent. So I focused on that four unit population because that just was where there were deals and where I could, you know, haggle and get a good deal because the sellers were a little more desperate to sell. Um, so that is how I started. I did buy a couple of foreclosures on like um, a, what they call here is a like a half a double or a half of a single house that um, is kind of like a duplex. And those would sit on the market because the flippers were just looking for single freestanding. So I'd buy like a half house, put a renter in it after I renovated it and then cash out and, and keep buying four units. So I have maybe 10 that are like singles and half houses and all the rest of my units before I started getting into really big multifamily or four unit apartment buildings. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I can imagine, you know, given your, your background and your track record of success that a lot of moms come to you and say, Hey, I, you know, I'm in a corporate job. I don't like it. I want to spend time with my kids. They want your advice, but I want to kind of turn that on its head and ask you, what's the worst sort of advice you see over here given in real estate investing? I think quit your day job too early and figure it out as you go. You know, it's a really dangerous time right now to quit your day job, to go into flipping or something that you don't know, where there's a lot of competition um, and, and not be prepared financially with enough savings and, you know, backup plans in order to go all in. There, there's a lot of just go all in and figure it out. And it's harder to do that when you're a mother and you have a family to support that depends on you putting food on the table. Okay. And then knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently in the very beginning? I think after the crash, when I was really excited and exuberant and thought that I could quickly buy more rental property and I could be home with my kids within a year or two, um, I did not know that there were other ways to buy property other than going to the banks. And the banks all told me, no, we're not gonna lend to you, you're too big of a risk. And so I wish that earlier on, you know, I had a couple years where I kind of sat on the sidelines and just kept going to banks and begging and they'd all say no and I gave up. So I just focused on continuing to rent, you know, rehab the units that we did have. I wish I had known earlier about seller financing and creative financing and private money lending and all of those things that eventually I did implement in order to scale my portfolio. Okay. Scott Todd, what are your thoughts? So, so today how how much like seller financing are you leveraging in your portfolio versus kind of like the traditional um you know bank bank financing etc so five years ago when i created my five-year plan to exit the day job and i knew i needed to buy basically 12 rentals 12 units a year 
for the next four years to, to have enough rental income, I knew that I needed to find some sellers that were willing to do seller financing. And so I bought two buildings, two four unit buildings back to back from retiring landlords. And they allowed me to finance all of it with a $10,000 down payment, which was just amazing. So once I did those two, I was like, okay, how can I find these deals? Um, I found another single really nice newer townhouse that was kind of like seller financing. It was a seller who had a private mortgage. So I contacted their mortgage holder and asked them if they would transfer the mortgage to me and allow me to take the private loan. And they did that. So I had three properties like that. Um, the only other thing I've really done since I've really focused on scaling up to a larger multifamily is um, I've bought, for example, I bought a 10 unit for my husband and I for our own portfolio that we didn't syndicate. And I did a 80% loan and I had the sellers hold a second for 10%. And then I put, you know, the other 10% down. So I, I've done that a couple of times and then did private lending for um, flips. Phenomenal, phenomenal. So let's talk a little bit about scaling. Let's imagine the person that's done a few rentals, maybe they've got a fourplex and they want to get to the next level. What would be your advice? I think a couple of things. I, I do think that you have to be really careful again, uh, you know, putting on my private banking financial advisor hat at this point in the cycle, properties are really overpriced. So you want to be careful of like chasing the, I have to scale, I have to have more units and going in on the wrong properties or with the wrong partners just for the sake of scaling. But with that said, you know, eventually everybody runs out of money and you run out of, of people that'll lend to you. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I had my best banks tap me out because they thought I was growing too quickly. And I, I like these small regional banks because they give you more flexible financing. You don't have to go through all of the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac process, but they get a little nervous once you start to really grow. And so, you know, you've got to get really creative in finding additional money sources finding some private lenders who are willing to, to lend to you to take down properties, um, finding some partners who will allow you to do some joint ventures. And that's exactly what I did um, last year before I prepared to retire this year is I knew I wanted to scale and move into larger properties. And I needed some chunks of cash to, to have enough save that I felt comfortable giving up my job of 20 years at AIG and I found two partners that I joint ventured on. So I found a 73 unit in Hershey with 44 garages. And I went to a partner and asked if he wanted to partner on it with us. And he brought in another partner and the three of us took down that 73 unit together. And then that has, you know, spun off into a partnership where the three of us have bought 200 units this last year. And it's been an amazing experience to be able to do that where it would have taken me many, many more years to build up my own cash to be able to do that, especially since I was retiring. I love it. I love it. Scott Todd, what are your thoughts? I, I was just thinking, you know, like it, as you're, as you're growing, obviously the management of these, of these properties are not necessarily, you know, something that you're going to do. So how have you like skilled the management along with it? Because to me, I don't mind like being the, the management company behind it, but I don't want to manage it, right? Like I don't want the tenants calling me, oh, my stove is broken. Fix it right now. 
I couldn't deal with it. So how, how have you done that? <laughs> You're right. And you know, what, what's reality and ideal on paper doesn't always make sense in, in, in reality. And so I have many different forms of property management. So just to give you an example, the 70 units that my husband and I own outright, just the two of us, we still self-manage those properties. 69 of those units, we self-manage. And part of that is because it makes sense for our family. So where my husband started this chiropractic business, you know, as, as you probably know, in 08, 09, when things crashed, so did healthcare change, reimbursements changed, and chiropractic became not as lucrative as we thought it was going to be. So he can make a whole lot more money buying and managing and renovating our properties than he can in his day job. And he has his own business where he can be open only a couple days a week and the other two days a week he can handle small property maintenance issues. So for example, if a tenant calls and says my toilet's leaking, he can check on them in five minutes and say either I'm going to do this because it's going to take me 10 minutes or I'm going to call my local contractor. So we have relationships with a lot of really great local contractors and we built, we redid these things to the point that not a whole lot goes wrong. So quite frankly, it's become very passive for these units because they're in good shape. We have really good tenants and we don't have a lot of turnover. Um, we've tried to hire property management companies locally and they did not do a good job. We just do not have a lot of good property management options in our area. And quite frankly, the ones that I gave to a property management company just to see how it went, I spent more time and lost more money on those few units trying to manage the property manager than just doing it ourselves. So not ideal, but it's made sense for us so far. Um, the other, you know, I, I'm a partner on 200 units that I told you about that's a joint venture. And for that, one of my partners has his own property management company. So it's really nice because we hire through his PM company on-site property managers and on-site maintenance. And my job is now as an asset manager. So I'm overlooking the business plan and overseeing the property manager and the maintenance, making sure they're doing what they need to do. But I don't get calls at night anymore, which is a game changer. It's so much better to have your own, you know, property management team. And then larger syndications that I'm involved with in Atlanta, we just bought 250 units there last month. I'm also the asset manager. So we have a large third party property management company that manages those assets. That's an expert in Atlanta. And my job is just to oversee them and make sure that they're doing what they need to do. So, you know, I've really got the gamut of, of all the different options and I'm still figuring out what I like best. Um, and ultimately, hopefully, I'll hire someone to work for me on my 70 units as well so that my husband's not doing it anymore. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So what can you tell us about tenant screening? Because you, you said you've got great tenants. Yes. I, I would imagine that the reason you have great tenants is you've done that upfront work to make sure you have great tenants. Yes. And... Uh, you know, this is all, all trial and error and you learn as you go and you, you make a few mistakes that really burn you and you, you tighten up your tenant screening and you don't make exceptions anymore. So, you know, one of the things is most of the properties that I own are in a really nice area like class A to B area really good school districts, above average income earners. And so I can be fairly selective. I also have more demand than we do supply. So it's rare that I have to sit on a unit and get desperate and try to fill it with somebody. And I've learned that if it's winter and I can't fill it, I'd rather it sit vacant than put the wrong person in there. So I do full credit checks, full criminal background checks, 
landlord references. I don't take the phone numbers that they give me because oftentimes they're made up and they're friends that say that they're their boss and they're not. So I Google research the right phone numbers for their employers and their former landlords and, and track them down. And I'm just really careful with who I rent to. Um, they have to have good credit, no evictions, um, you know, pretty clean criminal background and make at least three times my rental income. And when I do that, I'd say 95% of the time, I end up with really great tenants. Wow. Scott Todd, it's a lot there, a lot to unpack. Well, I, I think that one of the, one of the things is that you, you, you kind of, you, you have to have your underwriting hat on, right? Like you gotta, you gotta have some, some standards in that case. And, you know, if you, if you break one of the, one of them, well then, you know, disaster is likely to happen. And so a lot of times people kind of get, you know, desperate, like I got to rent this thing. And so then they let down their guard. Next thing you know, they got a nightmare tenant. Well, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you establish rules, well then the rules are the rules. That's the way that it is. And you got to kind of stick to it. Even if you might've missed a good, a good tenant along the way, man, you, you don't know. It could have, it could have been a good tenant or, you know, it might've been a, a train wreck, but Absolutely. if you have the rules in place, then it's just the rules and you follow it and, you know, sorry, you qualify or you don't qualify. Exactly. It's so important because you do make exceptions and people know how to pull at your heartstrings and really good shysters are really good shysters. You know, you can think, oh, they're so nice. They have a family. They're all so well-dressed and they just, you know, had this one little hiccup, but everything's fine. I'm just going to trust my gut. And I tell you, as, as much as I'm a good discerner of people, when you have someone in front of you for five minutes and they fake their application, it's hard to figure that out until it's too late. So, you know, I pretty well do not make any exceptions anymore um, when it comes to tenant screening. Exactly as you said, they, they either fit the mold or they don't. And if you do and it costs you a couple thousand dollars, you know, once or twice, you'll quickly learn and, and you'll change your, your underwriting. <laughs> You know, you know what's interesting about that is that uh, I'm listening to this great audiobook by Malcolm Gladwell talking to strangers. And it turns out we're just, as human beings, we're just terrible at this. Everyone yeah. is. And uh, he has example after example. Um, but what's interesting is that the less information you have, when you don't meet them in person, you, you make a better uh, judgment than you would when you get them in front of you and um, all these other variables come into play. But yeah. if you're just looking at the, the application and nothing else, you'll you tend to make a better decision. Absolutely. Mark, that's a, Mark, that is a great book. I'm listening to it as well. And you know, like the, it, it is amazing. The, the information or the, 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 basically the, the information that he uses to make the case. It's a great book. I'm going to read that. That sounds really interesting. You, you would love it. You absolutely would love it. Um, especially given, you know, tenant screening, just, just for tenant screening alone, you, you would get a lot out of that, that book. Um, yes. In the Burr method, which part of it do you hate the most? And which part of it do you love the most? I love getting the check when I refi and being able to use that to, to buy another property. That makes me giddy and that makes me happy. Um, I hate the rehab process and dealing with contractors and having to schedule multiple contractors because usually none of them stick to their time or their budget. 
um, and then they cause other things to happen and the other people have to get rescheduled. Um, and, and as a woman, my most, my biggest difficulty in real estate is really dealing with contractors because if a guy tells them this is not good enough and this isn't up to par and I need you to fix it, they're like, okay, fine. And they, they, they fix it. They might push back a little bit. But if I tell them that I'm looked at as like a domineering witch and they don't want to deal with me, you know, because I'm making them do something different. So just the process of doing that and finding really good, reputable contractors is, is not fun, to be honest with you. Um, it, you know, it, it's something to say for staying kind of local and making sure that if you're going to rehab properties and you're going to have them, if you are local, you kind of have a choice and, and you can build that rapport with different people. But when you go into a new market, it, it can be challenging. Yeah, that, that is an interesting point. Do you ever just want to have a full-time general contractor that would just go in and manage all of this and take it off your plate? Or is that not economically viable? You know, if I was in the business of flipping property and, and one of my partners on my, my uh, 200 units is, he's got a side business where that's what they do. They have staff that, that handle every single aspect of the business and you're going to do it as like a full-time thing absolutely it can make sense to hire your own people because we were doing it as a side hustle to try to build up enough rental income while we really didn't have a lot of cash in the beginning we really did not do that we had to kind of on a on a con, on a deal by deal basis when we found a property you know we sometimes we only bought four properties in a year um you know we would find the right contractors that were available at, at that time and my husband did a lot of it as well so great scott todd you know, Mark, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of different ways that you could, you could slice this thing. You know, there's a lot of different aspects of it. I always say that if you hate something, get somebody else to go do it for you. And yeah. uh, yeah. it might be a good, good case now to, to do the same thing. If you hate something, like maybe you're not good at it. Like the re like, I mean, listen, Mark, if you and I went and had to do a rehab, uh, I think it'd be a mess. Yeah. If you, know, oh. if you and I had to do it. Oh, it'd be, it'd be, it never get done. And to your It'd point, Scott, it, yeah. you know, in the beginning, this is where I was talking about when I'm, when I'm trying to help people through getting started in real estate, I say, how much time and how much money and what are your skills? So I had no time and I had no money. So we had to really put in our extra time and our skills. Now you could not pay me to do a rehab project where I don't have a general contractor that does the work because my, my, my wealth has changed my time and my, my, um, my time availability and my skills have changed. And so now I'm scaling in much larger multifamily properties where we have entire crews that are coming in and, and turning units and doing rehab projects. So I am hiring people to do that on a much bigger scale. And I'm not really wasting time buying any more of the singles and the duplexes and the four units that I did. It's what I needed to do to get me to the point of financial freedom. But now, you know, my, my, lifestyle has changed. And so my investment choices have changed along with it. And contractors is exactly one of those things. Well, Anna Kelly, you are a living inspiration um, <laughs> because somebody like you with a full-time job, raising four kids and building up a side hustle of essentially a real estate empire. <laughs> if you can do it, given all that, and you're listening to this, you can do it as well. So I think your mentorship has been phenomenal this podcast, but now we want to ask you for a tip of the week, a website, a resource, a book, 
something else actionable where the art of passive income listeners can go improve their businesses, improve their lives. What do you got? Sure. So one thing that is really exciting that is, is for today that like no other time in history is if you have a business and whether you're flipping land or whether you have rental property, any type of business, there is this little known um, tax benefit called bonus depreciation that you can take advantage of that can have a huge impact on the taxes that you pay for next year. So we just bought last night a $65,000 truck. And we paid like 50 grand for it, but we put zero money down, 0% interest, and we will make one car payment of $1,400 next month. And I will get a $50,000, 100% tax write-off against my taxes next year because I'm buying a vehicle for my business. We never would have bought new and that expensive had it not been for the new tax code that allows us this 100% write-off to make it essentially like I am paying 50% of the value of that truck because of the tax rebate that I'm getting on the back end. Does the truck have a weight? Uh, 6,000 pounds or greater. 6,000 pounds or greater. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what, Scott, I'm going to use this for my new Tesla truck. Go get it. Oh. Oh, <laughs> Jeez, Mark. Mark, the Tesla truck, man. <laughs> That's super true. Oh. I know it's ugly. Just imagine though, what else can you do to buy something that you're going to enjoy and use for your business that you can, can have that big of a tax impact? It's, it's amazing. And you can do the same thing with apartment buildings. So the apartment buildings that we just bought, we're going to have, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in bonus depreciation for assets that we just bought and will own for a month, just by the, the nature of the fact that we bought them during this tax code um, that, that we're in right now. I love it. That's a great tip. Uh, Scott Todd, what's your tip of the week? All right, Mark, this is, um, here's, here's my tip. Okay. I want you to check out, I just lost it. I want you to check out co-screen.co. That's co-screen.co. All right. Co-screen.co. Co All right. I'm checking it out now. And what's cool about this is imagine, imagine that we are kind of in a meeting together. And we're, we're both using this co-screen or the three of us are using this co-screen, okay? And we have like this meeting going on and I can just drop my screen, the screen that I want you to see, like the app that I want you to see onto the screen. And then you could see it and then you could immediately take over my computer without even having to request information. Just take it over and fix something like, here, let me just fix this for you, Scott. I'm like, okay, great. And then you wanna show me something and you drop it onto the to the co-screen. It's a great way of working with VAs, I think. It's, wow. it's new. Check it out. It's it's pretty cool. This is super geeky. I love this. <laughs> yeah. And I love the price. It's free. Well, it's wow. Free. Yeah. Watch the video on the front page there. Like it's pretty cool. That's really cool. Well, my tip of the week is be like Anna Kelly. Go to <laughs> reimom.com and learn more there. Tons of resources. Uh, Anna Kelly, are we good? We're good. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Thank you. Scott Todd, are we good? We're good, Mark. All right. Well, dear listener, the only way we're going to get the quality guests like Anna Kelly from reimom.com is if you do us three little favors. You got to subscribe. You got to rate. You got to review the podcast. Send us a screenshot of that review 
to support at thelandgeek.com. We're going to send you for free our $97 passive income launch kit course, as well as the new wholesaling course, how to double your money 30 days or less. We really appreciate it. You need to do it. Today's podcast is sponsored by Flight School. Just learn more at thelandgeek.com forward slash training. Scott, are we ready? We're ready, Mark. Let's one, read them. One, two, three. <laughs> it's okay. Just do it. Just go. Where did, you go. This, this is awkward. Let, Let freedom, freedom ring. Ring. Anna Kelly's like, I'm not coming back on this. Let one. freedom was, ring. Woo! There it is. <laughs> that was absolutely terrible, man. It was terrible, but at the same it time, was good. extremely entertaining. It was, yes. <laughs> I thought, yeah. I think that's why everybody just listens. It's just for us to see to see if we can actually like get it right one time. It's it's like the awkward high five, <laughs> but yeah. in audio form. So yes, I agree with yeah. you. All right, thanks everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Art of Passive Income podcast. Start your journey at www.thelandgeek.com and www.scotttodd.net. Rate and review the podcast and email support at thelandgeek.com. Your screenshot for a free passive income launch kit.